0: Pronto, this is Learning Matters, A Bridge to Practice, and I'm your host, Scott Macklin, here at Studio Yara at Trinity Western University in beautiful British Columbia. Today we have with us Martha Gonzalez. Martha is a Chicana Arta Vista, a musician, a feminist music theorist, an assistant professor in the intercollegiate department of Chicana and Latina Studies at Scripps Claremont College. She's a Fulbright, Ford, and Woodrow Wilson Fellow, and her academic interests have been fueled by her own musicianship as a singer, songwriter, or percussionist for the Grammy Award-winning band Quetzal. Martha, welcome. Tell me something good.
1: I'm still alive. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's real good. But I wanted to um, uh, correct you there real yeah, quick, uh, Scott. I'm actually an associate professor now. So that's oh, totally. another thing that I can tell you that's good.
0: Well, Meiseltoff. <laughs> so that, that process has been, that box has been checked.
1: Yes. <laughs> yes, it has.
0: That's terrific. So Martha, you know, we're, we're living in pretty uh, fluid, dynamic, catastrophic times, if you will. What, what, what are you doing to, to keep well?
1: Well, um, you know, staying busy in all sorts of ways. Uh, the day is consumed with not just uh, trying to keep my my classes. Uh, uh, well, actually, I'm planning. Uh, I start teaching next week again. We were given an extra week of a uh, spring break in order for us to be able to learn the Zoom sort of platform and plan our classes. So I'm doing a lot of that, catching up on some reading. I every once in a while I go outside and I do some gardening um, and I'm playing a lot of music. I've been playing a lot of music. So that really keeps me um, grounded and feeling safe in a lot of ways, right? All of those activities. And of course, I'm spending a whole lot of time with, with my family and um, my small little family here, but yeah.
0: It's a, it's a small, but a family with big impact. (laughs) 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 <laughs>
1: it is yes yeah. i have my husband quetzal flores is a program manager and an arts uh sort of basically as cultural strategist is what i think i'd like to call him a um and a very um a founder of the band quetzal and uh, he just has his hands in all sorts of things uh uh no pun intended and uh uh but uh <laughs> and then my son is is also a, a musician and he's a, a student at los angeles county high school for the Arts. It, He's a flute player and, uh, you know, he plays the traditional song, Jarocho, which we do a lot in my family. And, and, uh, and yeah, we're, we're, you know, we like to just do little jam sessions at the end of the day. We play and we're actually getting ready to um, um, do a, a national a sort of um, advocate for a national rent strike that will be taking place for three months. Um, and we are accompanying that with music and different scholars and people that can comment. Um On some of the concerts that will be aired national um that will be air- aired basically and open to all and anybody who wants
0: to log on so let's um let's start there oh we've already started but let's progress there in in the intro the word arte vista was used to describe part of who you are and what you do. unpack for me how you frame being an arte vista
1: okay well. To be an artist um, that is uh, entertained or is uh, finds politics as an important uh, uh, thing to express in their music and in the content of whatever kind of work they do, whatever medium they're involved in. So in my case, it's music. To have a musician who is concerned with the social aspect of the world and politics is not so far fetched, right? We have a lot of artists slash activists. Out there in the history and currently, that is not far fetched um, and nothing new, really. But to be an artivista for me is really about signaling to um, a process, which means that as artists, what we take just as seriously as our work on the stage and for consumption, um, what we take just as seriously is, is using our skill sets to develop process based. Community engagement um, based on whatever skill set you have. So whether if you're an artist, you know, such as like Omar Ramirez, who is a wonderful visual artist and muralist, but also has uh, infuses uh, um, uh, infuses uh, what he calls um, uh, restorative art practices or restorative justice practices with art uh, processes you know into some of his work so he has a way of going into communities and utilizing art and the medium of art what at whatever level you find yourself um and and finds a way of getting the communities to really um talk about some of their their lives talk about some of their the their injuries some of their the, the way in which they see their communities you know and i mean get really d- deep down in there and utilize some of his skill sets and um to engage the communities in this way. And so the same thing with us as musicians, we use a collective songwriting method or, or fandango practices, for example, in order to be able to engage communities in dialogue. Uh, and doing this, being creative as communities, we believe that, and we more importantly, we've seen time and again, that communities summit to new kinds of analysis, like wonderful things happen, in the process of creating music together as community.
0: So I want to walk back a few years. You were in the long, dark tea time of the soul of your PhD program. (laughs) You and Quetzal and Mm -hmm. your other bandmates were recording an album, which actually won a Grammy, Imaginaries there's such a fascinating connection knowing you at that time between your scholarly work and your music work and imaginaries was an amazing manifestation of all of that coming together. Where did the title for that album come from and how did that album itself actually become this interesting connect point for you?
1: Well, there are a number of things. I would think uh, the catalyst, there were many catalysts I would say that happened during this time. For one, you know, when you're in grad school, you're so deep in the literature that you're required to read. Um, and that was the first time I had ever really sat and like really just uh, simmered in all of this stuff that was coming at me. Right. And in this case, it was a course taught by Michelle Hebel Bayan, um, a professor at the, in the University of Washington in Seattle in the Gender Studies Department. And we read many books, of course, but one of the books that was most influential for me, and particularly the ideas that were posited in it, was "The Decolonial Imaginary" by Emma Pérez. Mm-hmm. And um, and for the first time, imagination was really something that was um, uh, was um, discussed more as a, a collective right and the imaginary she would call it and uh and in this case was the what it was called writing chicanas into history and uh sort of like learning how to read in the silences and the in-between lines of what were what is not mentioned oftentimes in in major um history books right and so that was a huge one for me and it made me realize that that if we were going to do anything for ourselves and our communities that we had we had to sort of produce the information and the knowledge base for ourselves. And so imaginaries actually that term itself was really constantly ringing in my head as we were in Seattle as we felt lonely having left our huge community here in Los Angeles and our families being in grad school can also be isolating as even though you're learning all these wonderful things Um, but you know, during that time we started sort of sharing and not because I wanted it to be any kind of of research project for me in grad school. That was never the intention, but because we were just so lonely and there were some people that showed interest, we started teaching, um, a lot of the, the practices that, and the different facets that you would need to participate in a Fandango. So this happened once a week every Monday in the music building at the University of Washington, and it was for free. We invited community members from off campus. And before you knew it, we had a host of people showing up every Monday for these free lessons. Children were around, older people, younger people, actual students, and everybody was really super into it. And towards the end of one of those nights, at the end of the semester, We decided, uh, I asked people to, hey, what do you guys think? It'll be our last session. Anybody want to bring some food? And somebody said, I'll bring this, I'll bring that. And so anyhow, we had basically a potluck. I showed up on that day. Um, I realized that suddenly we were hugging and kissing people hello. We were all eating. We were having tostadas. And it just felt, suddenly it felt like a community. And I hadn't felt that in that space in Seattle at all. People are very nice, but I have to say that it was. I didn't feel people are very nice, but I didn't have a community. And for the first time, I felt like, wow. And so, those lyrics and the imaginaries are really about the feeling. I wrote those lyrics, I would say, that same weekend after coming home and realizing as we were driving home, I remember like basically being in tears and crying and telling my husband, like, can you believe it? Can you believe what just happened? And he's like, what? And I said, everybody showed up. And he goes, well, yeah, we have a workshop. I said, yes, but it was the last day and everybody brought food. And we all, it, I felt like for the first time, like we were home. Like, isn't that crazy? And music did that. Music did this. And yeah. he's like, you're right. And, and I just, it was just one of those really hopeful moments. And that's what the lyrics are about, you know? And the lyrics really are talking about that process, right? A shift, a a move, a surge, we feel and then manifest, which this is, Imaginaries is actually about how artivistas work, right? A shift, a move, a surge, we feel and manifest. Um, Slide from uncertainty and move. Slide from uncertainty and and move into intent. Interminable Imaginaries guided by ancestor strength, abide by no one's government, we below and to the left.
0: just a little taste of imaginaries. And and I also just want to say full disclosure is that I was able to participate in those early days of being involved in this emergent coming together of people. But I came in it because I was actually asked to help document and frame and create some reification of this emerging community of practice. And it was only three or four years later before at the assistance of your husband, hey, when are you going to put down the camera and start playing? And I kept saying, <laughs> no, look, I'm not a musician. Let me bring my talent to the table. He said, you're not listening. This is participatory. Everyone needs to play. And that's when yeah. I started playing. But for that first bit of time, I was that, you know, story framer from the from the side, from the middle. I don't know. I was everywhere with my camera, as you know. Um, <laughs> but what was amazing was that understanding that move from performance to participation was something that was talked about but i didn't get it in my bones until i actually started learning exactly. to play and there's exactly this, and there's this wonderful term convivencia could you talk about that term and that phrase in the context of this emergence
1: yes Well, as you said, I'm going to talk about it and I, and I'm hoping that a lot of folks may have some experience with it because that's just the crux of it, right? That in, especially in our society and Western societies where, um, and it's particularly hyper-capitalist societies where everything is about buying or selling, right?
0: But rarely is about extraction,
1: exactly extraction. And then you buy or you sell. That is our arrangement with everything, even creativity, right? So, <clears throat> um, oftentimes we don't do, we don't, we don't have like uh, cultural spaces, or the culture does not revolve around being creative with each other, just for the sake of being creative in community, in any medium, you know, art, music, you know, um, it's all about capital, right? And uh, you either buy or you sell, and so. With rare exceptions, I would say people that go to church, for example, may understand something about that. If people sing together, if people are, but even then it's, it's not quite the same thing. And, and the thing about convivencia is a term that's used a lot with, um, in fandango practice, because that's just the point of it, right? It's being the most present human being in this practice. And it's not about how good you are as much as how well of a participant you are, and how present you are for yourself, for your community, and participate to the best of your ability. It's uh, diff- it's transgenerational. It is uh, <clears throat> um, it's uh, it's ephemeral. So people come together, they participate in fandango, and for many hours, and then it's over, and everybody goes home but you can enact this practice in any space in somebody's home in an actual community space in another place and all you have to say now is say hey there's going to be a fandango at so and so's house or at this and this center and people gather and and it happens and what happens during that moment and when you're participating like you can actually experience a kind of elation or or like a what um, um Thomas Torino, a scholar uh, that that wrote a book called "Music," jeez, um, uh, I forgot the name of the book. It's called "Music and Community or the Politics of Participation." That's what it's called. And he talks about it as flow. It's mm-hmm. sort of like when you run when you run a long mile, and suddenly you go on this like you you lose a sense of time, you lose a sense of what what just happened, how much time actually went by. You you kind of go in a zone. And that's what happens a lot in Fandango. And people experience it time and time again. You know, you go on a long run, you can experience that as well. It's a kind of high that you get. And a lot of people get this in Fandango and it's absolutely um, addicting. You know, you do it in community. You're sweating. You're listening to things. You're having a great time. You're connecting with other people in the little breaks between the zones. And it's just something that is so special. And something that we don't do in the society, and we don't have spaces for it. And as artivistas, we advocate for these kinds of spaces. If, if first of all, in a lot of our backgrounds and our cultures, we have these things; mm-hmm. they still exist. Yeah. That need to be dusted off and practiced and taught to other folks. <clears throat> and then we also need to, uh, but we also need to uh, um, invent some of these things. I think we can really uh, stand to invent some of these things. Mm-hmm.
0: So this is Learning Matters, A Bridge to Practice. And I want to walk into your practice a little bit as a teacher. And I want to walk into that discussion by having you talk about, was there an influential teacher in your life, whether that was inside the classroom or outside the classroom?
1: Wow. Yes. Every time I think about, I get that question um, in terms of like, who's the most effective teacher, the most wonderful teacher we've ever had. And and I would have to say, I always think about this one teacher, her name was Helen Stringos. She was a, ger- uh, she was a um, <clears throat> excuse me. She was a Greek American, Greek American uh, born to immigrant parents. She spoke perfect Spanish. Um, and she taught in East LA for, I would say 30 something years. And she taught us everything we needed to know about folklorico. And um, and but she was also my fifth and sixth grade teacher and her lessons were always infused with art and culture. Um, So she taught us discipline. She taught us. uh, She was a very rigorous teacher in terms of like um, she was very much about, um, you know, doing uh, uh, making sure that we were it was academically rigorous but she always found a way of including art and music and culture and poetry. And like, she was just amazing. So I would say she's one of the folks that, um, the first example in fifth and sixth grade, which uh, made me realize that art and culture were important things in any space and not just the stage.
0: So in your mind's eye, and you're walking through that classroom and that experience does a particular assignment or something that you created in that class come to mind? And can you describe what that was?
1: Well, you know, there were a couple of assignments that I can think of in that particular class. And the first one is she, once a week, we had to memorize a poem, Mm. not a very long one, just a poem, you know? And for her, she felt like what we got out of it was, you know, not just the fact that we got to sort of internalize the kind of prose that uh, famous poets can have produced, but it was a work, an exercise in memory. <clears throat> and also for a bunch of kids from East L.A., um, we got to really sit down and observe and listen to how people were great poets were describing scenery or ideas or we would discuss the poems it wasn't just about learn this and that's it like you know random thing it was like we discuss it and so memory memorizing poems and learning to recite them i still remember a bunch of them to to this very day and um well and the other go ahead which
0: means i want i want to What what was one of the ones that come to mind (laughs) <laughs> so
1: I'm thinking of a Robert Frost poem that I never forgot. And yeah. and uh it would say, um, how did it start? Wait, a, minute. uh uh Oh darn. See now you put me on the spot. I'll oh, I come to me right now. Don't okay. <laughs> no, come it's tough. to me right now. I know, I know. Um oh no, okay, okay. Uh, I forgot the name of this person, but his name is he, he was a sir, he was Don' a sir. But this is one of them, which I really enjoyed. And then later in, in later on in the years, I, I, I made my son memorize it because I thought it was so beautiful. It's uh, out of the night that covers me, black as a pit from pole to pole. I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. Beyond this place of, uh, beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And that was that poem is called Invictus.
0: Yeah. And Uh, and, and, and and
1: Nelson Mandela.
0: Yeah, used to carry that in his pocket. It was um, William Ernest Henley.
1: There we go. Yeah. William uh, Henley, Henley. I, always, I wanted to say <laughs> Don Henley. No, no, yeah. no. no, 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 no,
0: no. <laughs> <laughs> that's another, that's another <laughs> poet. No. That's
1: another great poet. Yes, yes, for <laughs> our times. No, but, but yeah, um, I forgot the way that the, it's about uber, um, cumulus clouds drift over the sky. Yeah. Fluffy as soap suds billowing by. Beyond the horizons in layers of light, the stratus clouds glow in the sunset bright. The nimbus clouds threaten with thunder and storm. Light the fire, stay something, something, stay cozy and warm. That, that was a Robert Frost poem about yeah. clouds. And in yeah. that lesson, she felt like there, there's different kinds of clouds. It was also a science lesson, right? So mm-hmm. I just felt the nimbus, stratus, you know, and then we learned all the other kinds of clouds. It was a science lesson. Anyhow, she was amazing.
0: And and the reason I like to take this walk to the teacher and the assignment is, you know, the impact that someone, you know, this was many, many moons ago, (laughs) the impact they had, and and you're still carrying these words and passing these words forward. So now I want to walk from you taking that walk back, and you had mentioned that you're preparing for, uh, you know, another term. And we know there's going to be some interesting challenges with teaching and learning in this coming term because of the particular COVID-19 situation that we're in. But I'm wondering if you could talk about when you're designing a course, what are your steps in terms of creating a learning objective, designing a learning activity, coming up with a reading, layering on an assessment? Do you have a process for when you're actually putting, what is your process for when you're putting a course together?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I really try to, um, I think I think a lot like a performer. I'll yeah. tell you the truth, yeah. because I know that I have an audience and I know that the audience will only pay attention or retain information up to, up until a certain point. Right. And what they say is 20 minutes of real information Absorption, and then beyond that is uh, you lose, you know, some of it, right? And so, for me, I really like to include a lot of process-based work along with a lot of art and music um, interaction, because I also believe that reaching people from an emotional perspective, from the emotions, from feelings, or getting them to feel certain things, is also the greatest kind of 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 uh, of teaching tool, (laughs) because um which is why trauma works so well, right? I'm not saying I traumatize my students, but in a way, if you think about it, some of the less greater lessons that you've ever learned in your life have have to do with how you felt, you know, when you learned it, you know, whether you're happy or you have a wonderful experience. Govivencia works because people experience flow. People experience the, the, these um, feelings of elation, right? So that's part of, uh, so I try to really keep the lessons creative Um, At this point, it's a challenge because most of my lessons are really or my classes are about building community and getting people to get out there into the community and be in contact with folks and, you know, sort of dialoguing a lot. And like they come back and they present and they, you know, they say they talk about how they feel and how they felt doing these projects. And so that's all, you know, I'm trying to figure out a way to get them to experience some of these things and experience some of these lessons in a virtual platform. And so that's gonna be really challenging, but doing this interview with you, honestly, is giving <laughs> me a lot of ideas. Okay. <laughs> so I'm gonna be citing you a lot and a lot of your resources. So it's, it's, it, at any rate, it's really, um, that's kind of my, my, my goal is to get, um, to really reach and get uh, folks to feel and to uh, and once they're feeling, then uh, getting them within and with the feelings, getting them to critically analyze, and then which always happens, people are yep. capable of these things, um, and then to uh, um, just uh, explore, you know, yeah, uh, yeah, ideas and and uh, and build a, a better future uh, for for us all, and all, always in, on a collective in a collective way,
0: yeah. One of my challenges in the context of using this screen mediated, um, uh, teaching mode and full disclosure, we're using zoom actually right now to conduct this interview is, you know, there's so much information when we're face to face that I can pick up the, the, the gestures in the classroom, our students getting it. And, 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 and in this mode, I'm cut off from all that information. Mm. So how do I create intentionality so I can have some empathetic, understanding of what our students are going through so one of the things that i'm trying to manage and mitigate is what i call resting zoom face right Mm. because when you're watching television you get a particular (laughs) face how do we we make sure our students are engaged so the question i want to flip to because i've also been fortunate enough to participate with you in some of the collective songwriting workshops that you've conducted And I want to ask you about that process, but specifically I want to ask you about the performance aspect because you'll show clips of Freddie Mercury. You'll show clips of Zach De La Rocha. I mean, people who just bring it, right? And it's not that you have to be that bringer when you're in front of a classroom or in front of a Zoom, but you got to do something that's going to cut through and connect with people. How do you do that?
1: (laughs) On a digital platform? Yeah man
0: yeah, um because I know you do it so well when you're on stage I, I just it, it, some of it may be translatable, and some of it may not and the, and these are you the, these are the open ended questions i don't know if I have an answer um, hmm.
1: yeah you know i i I think that um you're giving me more ideas, you know, I keep feeling uh, like i I want to share some stuff, I really want to try to um and in terms of assignments, uh, you know, and the things that I'm requiring them to read, um, I am going to stick to some of the readings, but I'm also going to have them watch certain videos mm-hmm. and films uh, uh, before they, they come to the, you know, to the classroom, um, because um, I think it's really important that, that, again, they feel something, they experience something um in real time um or at least through a virtual platform of a performer or a or a moment like in for example i'm teaching a class a course right now called Ar- "Artivistas in the americas and so i'm really we've been unpacking what artivismo means um and uh what artivismo means and what how that um translates into an actual practice how different people across the americas have, have engaged in this and uh and I'm going to try to find clips of folks that are doing this and that are that are interacting in communities in these ways. And uh, I do it in class anyway, but I think that these video examples are going to be even more meaningful at this point. And just doing reflections. And uh, I was thinking about also based on discussions with a bunch of a host of other folks and that are doing very similar things. Is I think I'm going to have since we're stuck at home. I'm thinking of having them do you know altares, on their own, oh, yeah. in their own spaces, and, and, and taking photographs and, and demonstrating like what they're doing with it, whether it be with books or other things that are laying around the house, you know, um, perhaps doing something like that, or, you know, just trying to get them to, to stay, be creative in this time, you know, and do any kind of offering they see fit, you know.
0: So for those listeners out there who may be not familiar with the term altaris, what, describe that.
1: So an altar is basically a, a place of offering. It's an altar. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a space um, designated to some people. Do it to uh, formerly deceased folks or or to saints, for example. Uh, an altar, basically. But um, it's really been theorized um, by a lot of Chicana feminist theorists that you know a lot more is happening than we think is happening in these little areas and what goes on in the building of an altar, or um, is. A lot is going on. There's dialogue. It is also a process, mm-hmm. um, and the kinds of discussions that can take place during this um, altar building is really significant, right? Oftentimes, people t- are telling stories about the deceased, or they're telling stories, um, you know, about history in the family or something like that. But even if it's not for a deceased person, an altar can also be um, has been used as a play- way of, of centering. Um, any for example and some folks do altaris for the body for example say if some folks are ailing they have you know cervical cancer or they you know there are some altaristas out there that do these sessions for people that are there have um, these diseases and say like okay we're going to make an altar for your for your pancreas <laughs> you know basically you know what does the pancreas do what does it channel what is it you know what are you hoping for in terms of your health and and people will actually do this right they will spend time and effort in focusing on certain parts of their bodies and and really and making a concerted effort to pro- create a sp- physical space outside of the body itself right a physical space that where they can focus their energies in, in as a healing practice and building altares in the process that, that has been very helpful for folks you know some people do altares to a trauma that they've had you know, so it's sort of taking that practice and uh, channeling it towards healing in in different perspectives, from different perspectives.
0: So I want to walk into a little bit more and open up the lid on collective songwriting. Talk to me about how that you came to that practice. And what are your hopes when you actually invoke that practice with the community?
1: The first time I ever experienced a collective songwriting workshop was, uh, with Rosa Marta Zarate. She is a former nun who sued the church and won the Catholic church and actually won. <laughs> She's kind of a legend. um, and she now lives in Riverside, California, but she's originally from Guadalajara, Jalisco, and she's a, a, actually a wonderful singer and guitar player. Mm-hmm. But I was in the mountains of Chiapas, Mexico, in a free autonomous area called Oventic, Aguascalientes Dos. They were at that time they were called Aguascalientes, and now they're called Caracoles. So it's basically autonomous regions that the indigenous folks there claimed and. The EZLN or the Ejército Zapatista de Liberación Nacional was um, uh, declared basically a war on the government, on the Mexican government in 1994, January 1st. And we were there in 1997. So their efforts were brand new and we were there. They What they did was invite an entire uh, communities from around the world or agreed communities from around the world, uh, struggling communities um, to come to their region to have dialogue. And so we, myself and my partner, Quetzal, were one of 120 Chicanos artists from LA. We were young college students mm-hmm. that decided to head down there and uh, um, and have dialogue, head yeah into Chiapas and have some dialogue. And so one of the things that we did was organize a week-long, five-day Encuentro Cultural or cultural encuentro where music, and creative activity was at the center of it and it, for process, right? Not product, process. Mm-hmm. And so songwriting was one of those things and Rosa Marta Sarate ran that, that uh, workshop. And her goal was to sort of, she said, what do we, if every day we had a different theme and if one of the first days was we found each other. That's our theme today. So this is the first time we meet. What do we know? What do we want? What are our hopes? And she basically facilitated this <laughs> a workshop in four different languages. It was a slow process, but it was Spanish and some English. Because so we had to translate through all of these things. And it was just amazing. And what happened was dialogue, people, hopes and dreams, what we want for the future. What is neoliberalism? What is it doing to us in our communities? How am I different? as a Chicano in, in deep in the LA trenches and in the Zapatistas, how are we different, but how are we also the same? Right. And so we just, it was five days of just constant dialogue through these processes and it was amazing. And it has, the way we enact it now has changed quite a bit. We've definitely modified certain things in order to, be a little more effective. We had our, all day in the Chiapas. We would spend hours doing that. And now we've sort of, sort of picked it up for the city, you know, a little more efficient. We get through it, you know, and that's part of using our skill sets as musicians where we know how to write a song and we can write a song by ourselves. That's not a problem. But when we write a song in community, it's extremely powerful and you know we 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 instigate this dialogue, and people get really excited when they begin to see their ideas form into melodies
0: and you 've done this in schools you 've done this in after school programs you 've done this in prisons um, so the the context generally will have an impact and the fact on how that community responds. But what I find is amazing that within a short about a t- short amount of time. People are entering in and really playing, and and getting into some deep concepts, but using their imaginations to craft. And because you have the skill, the acuity, and the and, and, and you know the the chops, this gets formed into a, a process that actually I think invokes flow.
1: I I really think so. You know, it's really interesting, and I'm always amazed every time we finish. And it comes together. We've written so many different songs with community or we've participated in it. And people are always really shocked to see how it comes together. And sometimes I'm in shock too. I'm like, wow, that was really cool. It's like magic. And it almost feels like magic. And, um, but to me, that just proves how we are all creative beings and we have a human right to be creative And that's something that no system and no uh, economic system can take from us. This is what capital does, right? They make us think that only the quote unquote artists are able to produce something creative. And of course, perhaps for sale, but that's that's not the only reason why we should engage in art and music and culture. We need to democratize more than ever and not for, again, not to professionalize, but to be in community with others, to be creative. We need, you have a human right to be creative and, and it's, and it's your responsibility to reach and to look for these spaces and, or build the spaces and, 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 and to, to, to stay creative. I think we'd be much happier. I think that we would see a a lessening of, of depression and mental health, uh, um, you know, needs would probably diminish if we had more of these kinds of things in our culture and we honored these spaces a little more. Not only did we develop, but also honor these spaces as as way, as forms of practice that we need to, um, you know, make time for, right? Um, and, and doing these collective songwriting workshops, and we're hired to do them in all sorts of spaces for various reasons, from like, you know, going into a prison and getting these, inmates to talk about how they're feeling or what they want to see different or to get folks to understand legislation, for example, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We've been hired to sort of translate Proposition 47, for example, was one of the things that we did recently. And then another, or the LCFF, which is federal money coming into public schools in Los Angeles. We were hired to do some of that stuff, you know? And so a lot of the times communities are really You know, in the power of the language, the language that goes into a a sort of legislation, like they they don't even want to touch that stuff. But as artists, we read these legislations, we realize what they want, we sort of translate some of that stuff, and then we're like, "What do you want to see in your community?" And we write a song about it, and they start because it's music, because it's a creative thing. (laughs) They're not intimidated by that. They end up having these amazing solutions they, they build a sense of like, uh, collectivism that, Mm -hmm. that sort of, uh, that lasts you know? Yeah. That brings everybody up and together. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's really is like magic music is and creativity in general, you know, art, music, creative, collective, creative, um, work, I think is, is, is much, a much needed practice that we need to, um dust off if we have them in our cultural practices as well as just come up with uh come up with these things
0: you know and and what's interesting it's it's not an either or arte vista it's not community participation performance you quetzal have a new album coming out and i want you to talk a little bit about this album but i know one of the songs in the album actually came out of a collective songwriting exercise because I was part of that exercise. Talk talk about that <laughs> song and talk a little bit about this upcoming album because I'm so stoked for it.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, you know, the album that's about to be out in the summer uh, of this year is called Puentes Sonoros or Sonic Bridges. Um, and it's really an exploration of the sounds and the verse forms of the Son Carocho. So once again, we're really delving into this, um, this sound, this music that has given us so much life and that is born in Fandango practice, right? Um, and so we're really excited about that because uh, it's a form that we've always loved, this genre of music. Now, I'm, I'm not, you're right, I am not saying either or. Right. I still continue to believe that performance and the people that dedicate their lives and, pro- and professionalize and are and are really dig deep into these practices um, can be transformative moments. Um, and um, we still need to value. Right. So shit, what would our world be without people like Freddie Mercury right. as performers? <laughs> as rock gods, right? What would it be with, what would the world be without a Jimi Hendrix having lived and come through our lives or-
0: Shaka Khan.
1: Exactly. Shaka Khan or Joni Mitchell or, or these people that, that obviously have a gift from God, right? That, that, and they share with all of us. And there's a lot of sacrifice that goes into that life. You know, I really admire those people that can give everything they have, sacrifice their families, their health, like, that's a big, big thing. Now, and and performance can be extremely transformative. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I've been to concerts that I've just like, that I'm just completely moved by that I'm, that I hang on to for years after. Right. So that's still up, but But that criteria is, and performance criteria and the stuff on stage is very different than the participatory stuff. Mm-hmm. So the two very different ethics. Right. And so I feel like in this society, we need both. And there is space for both. Yep. And, and that is what I advocate mainly for, right? Like, of course, like there's going to be those folks that are professional, of course. And then I think we also need to make time and effort to build the participatory spaces. And oftentimes I think that artists have now need to build a skill set to be able to participate in those ways as well. Yep. There's no, there's no, because we realize that, that, um, that it's a new way of of being in the world, and we need to do those things. We have a responsibility to do these things. Yeah. Um, so that's just my two cents about that. But but in terms of like the collective songwriting stuff, like you know we're continue to be a band. We're a quetzal. We record. We're, I mean, you know, we're we're subjected to both, um, you know, praise and criticism, uh, like any other musician, right? Um, and so. But one of the things that we like to do still is remind ourselves that our community is out there and that we engage with them. And so we recently, many years back, actually, we conducted a collective songwriting workshop with the Seattle Fandango Project, which you are very much a part of, and you're a big part of of, of having um, written this song as well, right? And we all, um, one of the things about the Seattle Fandango mm-hmm. Project that I've always found so beautiful is that there uh, compared to other spaces, they're really thinking about children. They really always thought about what kinds of activities we would have for the kids, how we would entertain them, because so many of us had small children about the same age. Yep. And, uh, and so this song was really an ode uh, to them and trying to find a song we created in the same style as the son Carocho, trying to find a song that was honoring the children and getting them to do hand gestures and feet gestures. And, and so that's what this song is. It's talking about describing these children as trees and how their roots run deep and their arms are the, the, the leaves and the, the branches of the tree. And, um, and, uh, and that was just beautiful. I felt like, uh, um, the song is just a gorgeous thing. It's sung by my son and my niece, Mm
0: -hmm. but
1: the lyrics and the melody were written by the Seattle Fandango project.
0: Can you share a little bit of the coro? Does that come to your mind or is that a little too far? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it
1: says uh, uh it says uh ramas arriba, ramas alado. Alma por dentro, raíces abajo. Ramas arriba, ramas alado. Y a sus raíces vienen brotando, which means um uh branches rise Branches rise to the t- to the to the sky. Branches rise to the side. The roots run deep. Um, um, it, it's it's uh, the branches are running deep into the earth. Um, their heart. vienen brotando. por dentro raíces Soul on the inside, roots to the ground. Yeah. You know so it's just beautiful the be- the lyrics are gorgeous, yeah, yeah. and the that the, the uh, verses are are really, really beautiful. I think it's gonna be one of those sones that really contributes really contributes to the uh uh to the Son genre. It'll be remembered for a long time
0: and to the overall giganticness of the world <laughs> exactly <laughs> so so thinking about branches, pages. And the rising of pages, you have a book coming out.
1: Yay! Woohoo!
0: So, (laughs) talk talk a little bit about this uh, this uh, those branches.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of this process that I've talked about today comes from lived experience, and I would say that that's what my book is. It's called Chicano Artivistas Music Community and transborder tactics in East Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's going to be out on UT Austin press in the summer. And it's a book that's really chronicling uh, a lot of autoethnography and chronicling the, this process, this life process that has given way to, um, along with many others has given way to a lot of these methodologies that I'm talking about, collective songwriting and Fandango and the way it's used in our communities. um, has been, has helped us um, reach new kinds of analysis. And, you know, uh, so it's really sort of looking, it's really about the change of music conception over time in my life. Um, That's the micro look and all these different examples. The bigger critique around this is looking at, um, is really a critique on capitalism and how it has um, really alienated us from our own creative selves and how that has intrinsically affected how we relate to each other. And some of the methods I'm really articulating at the end there are, are about how we can perhaps um, get back to ourselves so that we can connect better with each other.
0: Now it's time to spin the Yara wheel.
1: What? Wait a minute. What, what is the Yara wheel?
0: Well, a Yara wheel, so in the older testament of the bible in hebrew there are nine different words to describe the act of teaching and one of those words is yara which is to point the way or to broadcast and since this is a podcast and because i just like to say yara so i invented the yara wheel so i'm going to spin it and then whatever it lands on is the question you get to answer you ready (laughs) yes Here we go.
1: Which living person do you most admire?
0: What is it that you most dislike?
1: When and where were
0: you happiest? Which historical figure do you most identify with?
1: How does your faith show up in your teaching?
0: What is your greatest extravagance? What is your most treasured possession?
1: Which talent would you most like to have?
0: What is your greatest fear? All right, it landed on what is your most treasured possession?
1: Oh wow. Oh man, that's a good one. What is my most treasured possession? I was going to say like my relationships, but that shouldn't be a possession.
0: Yeah.
1: Um my greatest possession. You know, I've been connecting with this thing for a long for many for many days now. And it was given to somebody by uh, somebody who really jump started this entire Fandango movement.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he gave it to me for free. It's my harana. Mm. It's a beautiful instrument. It was a gift from this very man who uh, has been an inspiration to a lot of people. He's a real hard head. Not, some people really don't like him, but for those who g- get to connect with him in a way that, he had, um, respects and he, he just sees the real work being done. He really, um, he's just, he's had a huge impact on my life and it was a real honor to receive this, this uh, gift from him and it was a harana. So it's my harana, my harana tercera that I have right now that I absolutely love. It's a two-tone harana. It's gorgeous. Have you seen it?
0: Scott? Oh yeah, yeah. I've seen it and I've heard it. It 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 is. Uh, <laughs> it, it makes beautiful noise. Or <laughs> yes, and, and what, I, Yeah. And one of the amazing things that I find about this particular this tradition, as and continually it emerges, is for those of us who participate in it, we pretty much can look at and know who made whose harana because there's only a handful yeah. of luthiers still making these haranas, and most of the music, the wood that's crafted for this collective coming together is 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 actually something that, um, it's not only a craft, an art, but it's also a way of expressing being together. We know who made each other's instruments. It's, it's phenomenal. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yes. Isn't that interesting? I hadn't thought about it like that, but you're absolutely yeah. right. And and most of the people that, even if they, their styles change here and there, mm-hmm. most everybody learns from this man.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Interesting, right? His name is Gilberto Gutierrez. And uh, he's, uh, he was really, he realized that you weren't going to be able to build a movement if you didn't have the tools for it. So he taught himself and he learned from other luthiers how to make these tools these instruments that what he knew would take them into you needed the materials right so he not only um, instigated for people to really think about the ethics of these practices but in having not having the um, understanding the ethics and knowing that you you have this that you want to do these things but not having the tools for it he was like well let let's just make the tools let's figure out let's figure it out and so he taught himself and then he taught other people and now other people make haranas. And so, you know, he really, it was a complete movement. And I think that's a perfect example of a perfect example of how, um, of how we need to think about these things, right? We may not have everything in hand, but the whole point is that we learn and we, and we, you know, let's figure it out. Let's figure it out.
0: And I think that example, that craftsmanship, the gifting, the learning, will help us move hopefully beyond an extraction to a more of a society and economy that's based on reciprocity and sustainability because that's needed more than ever. Yes, yes,
1: absolutely.
0: Well, Martha, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for for taking the time. Um, um, Remind us again, you said you have a series of jams coming up where can we yes. find? describe those and where can we find them
1: yes so you will see um, more than likely the best place to go to just to even begin to link up is through artivist entertainment mm-hmm. um it's a actual a platform now and a website um built by a bunch of artivistas uh, one of them being my husband quetzal flores and uh, he's um we are going to do um, are really advocating for a three month na- uh, national rent strike um, due to this crisis and thinking about a lot of the musicians and the um, people that work by creating uh, you, that earn their income by selling to people, right, by doing, you know, service work and things of that sort. And being that we're all housebound at this point, there's no way in hell that they're going to be able to pay their bills and rents. And so we are really advocating and pushing the state and the federal government to really not be owed at all, just have three Mm -hmm. months of of rent moratorium and that's it, nothing owed. And we go from then on out, especially um in these times. And so we're and it regardless of immigration status, um um of course regardless of immigration status as well. So um you can go to Artivist Entertainment um I believe it's a dot org um but just type in Artivist Entertainment and it'll come up. It's gonna be all over Facebook, all over Instagram. And it's uh, we're going to have a series of artists, um, huge names as well as uh, you know local artists um, in the, the Los Angeles to New York, um, along with thinkers, um, sort of and and talks called charlas mm-hmm. um, that will be discussing some of these issues. Uh, the homelessness crisis as well, and we're really trying to connect all of these things, right? All of these things, the economy, the social, the political, the art world, the you know, um, and there's no better place to do it than on these kinds of platforms.
0: yep so i'm I'm praying for and imagining some grace and some peace that passes <laughs> all understanding. So yes. thank you again. You've been listening to learning matters, a bridge to practice. And we'll be talking together again real soon.